sometimes I uh, believe I was born too late. Um, I may have been more well-suited for the 1730s. When Jonathan Edwards preached in Northampton, Massachusetts in the 1730s, his voice was the dominant voice in public discourse. Why, at the water cooler on Wednesday at noon, whatever rendition and iteration of the water cooler there was in the 1730s, uh, they weren't talking about uh, the national championship football game, or they weren't talking about um, the latest Mandalorian episode that dropped, or uh, what uh, Seinfeld rerun that they had watched that they thought was funny that they wanted to remind each other of. They were talking about Edward's message. It was really the only game in town. It was the only voice that was heard. Sunday morning, he would preach. Sunday afternoon, he would preach. And they would talk about it and seek to live it. There's no internet, no 24-hour cable news cycles, no social media, just Edwards preaching, looming dominant over the people. Today, we live in a different day. There's a million voices out there. There's a lot of competition for the hearts and minds of God's people in the day in which we live. How the preacher, the teacher, relates to the people of God and how they relate to him is actually what is discussed in Galatians 4, 8 through 20, the passage that is before us. How the preacher's voice is heard in the midst of the many voices of the culture affects the health of the church. So I want to use Galatians 2 as a prism through which to look and with you evaluate this moment. Where are we? Who are we listening to? We open God's book to Galatians 4. Come there with me, please. We re-enter Galatians, Graceland. We go back to Graceland. Uh, we are going through this letter written to a group of people. The church is in turmoil. Paul came, shared the good news about Jesus and knowing him. Many came to place their faith in Christ. And when the Jewish people who had come to place their faith in Christ saw that the Gentile people came to place their faith in Christ, there were some Jewish teachers that stood up and said, now I'll tell you what, if you just keep the law, you'll be a-okay with God. Time for all you men to line up. Let's get circumcision cared for here. And then you'll be just what the law prescribed. And Paul said, no, no, wait a minute. You're, you're, you're perverting the gospel. We've just gone through sections where the ideas are pretty high on the shelf. I mean, he's explaining the purpose of the law and why 430 years after God promised Abraham, he brought the law and he explains the law's purpose in our life that brings us inexorably to Jesus because of our inability to keep the law. It brings us to Graceland. It's our tutor that leads us. And he's been explaining all these lofty ideas. Now he's going to come out of the clouds of the ideas and he's just going to get personal with them and talk about 
how he loved them and what it was like to share the gospel with them and what it was like to have them respond to him as the church is planted. And then he talks about the false teachers and how they relate to the people in Galatia and how they are starting to relate to him differently. And so he gets very personal in these 12 verses, dissimilar to where he's been, very ideological. Now we kind of come out of the head into the heart and those are always wed together. Here's Galatians 4, 8 through 20. I have the privilege of reading it to you this morning, reading out of the English Standard Version. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. But now, now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, our plan this morning is to go two different directions, two major points. First, we need to notice how that the world is full of voices. There was Paul's voice in Galatia, the voice of the gospel. There was the false teacher's voices, and he contrasted. Notice I and they and they and them in verses 16 and 17. There were the false teacher's voices there. But then, of course, we find ourselves in our age living with an infinite number of voices beckoning for our attention. But after we look at this world full of voices and our need for discernment, there are three takeaways that crawl into our heart and minds this morning and provoke our conscience, and we'll look at those before we leave. First, we need discernment in choosing to whom we shall listen. Wisdom. That's what we need to choose the founts where we're going to access our information for living. Now, let me say two things under this first point. First, false voices want a platform, an adoring following, and a grip 
on their followers. Now, when you hear the term false teacher, some of you immediately say, I'll tell you what, I know what that is, Eric. That's Brother Gumball in a side room treating, teaching something that's unorthodox. He's in there telling them, for example, Jesus is not God. He's in the side room telling them that Jesus has not raised from the dead. Obviously, that is a false teacher, and indeed it is. But if we sequester our notions of what it means to pick up a lie as just Brother Gumball unhinged teaching unorthodox things, we're going to miss the challenge of living for Christ in our day when so many ideas are out there saying, believe me, embrace me, I'm telling you the truth, even though it is a lie. Uh, this week, Joe Carter on the uh, Gospel Coalition website published uh, for parents an article uh, that said, uh, don't outsource your kid's catechism in 2021. And, and don't miss his use of the word catechism or trip over that. He was arguing who will teach your kids about reality in 2021? In the article, he asked, for example, what Spotify playlist will influence the perception of your children as they look at life? What voices are we listening to? What an age we live in. Isn't it amazing to think that HBO pay-per-view came on as some novel thing in the 1970s? The World Wide Web came mainstream in 1989, but not until then. Facebook is launched in 04, Twitter in 06, Instagram in 2010, Snapchat in 2011, TikTok in 2016, Spotify that I mentioned earlier was launched in 2006. By the way, what music playlist from Spotify will capture your imagination and be the songs that will be sung in your mind in 2021? We live in an age where there's a host of teachers out there, uh, a smashing variety of voices out there, of all these networks in play beckoning for all our attention. I was thinking of that old hymn, Give Your Best to the Master, this week when I was thinking about this point. The last line in the chorus says, join in the battle for truth. And in our day, there's quite a fight going on for truth. And what is true? There's a host of teachers out there. Now, these teachers have beckoned for the Galatians' attention, and in chapter 4 and verse 80 says, before you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. What is he referring to here? He's talking about the lies that they believe that brought them not to freedom but to bondage. And that those lies were actually lit by the fires of hell. Uh, and he uses language here. This word nature is the nature, those who are not gods, is an allusion with the very terminology that he uses to the demonic world. That what you have in this cocktail of the age that we live in are Satan and his minions who desire 
lies, he's the father of lies, lies to be believed, and when they are believed, it ties people up in knots. And the most fundamental idea that he starts with and builds everything else upon is that there is no consequence for our sin. Has God really said is the question for the ages. Has he or has he not? You will not surely die, was his assertion. And so it is with these lies that are believed. And he gets us to uh, uh, embrace outside of Christ the elementary, the basic, the rudimentary, the fundamental principles of the world, the elementary principles, he calls them. Uh, there's a rock group in the 70s that launched. Uh, they were called Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, looking at the elementary things perceived by the pagan world as operating in the world that makes the world go around. Uh, elementary things. Uh, a vision of the world that is shaped by nature, dominated by these forces. Well, he's saying that Satan's minions, the demons, uh, stir people up to believe and have loyal attachments to these elementary principles, and they get their lives off track. It leads us to bondage rather than freedom. Now, Graceland, which is where the gospel takes us, is taking us to freedom. By the way, we are told by our culture, throw off all of those restrictions that the narrow way asks of you, and you will come to freedom when you throw off those restrictions. Well, look at our culture. Our indulgence is not taking us to freedom. It's taking us to great bondage. A friend of mine ran after his prodigal friend who ran out of his marriage and traversed himself several states over to a major city, and my buddy looked him up. And when he finally got to him and they talked with each other, his friend broke down. And he looked at him and he said, sin is a prison. I've been brought to bondage is what he was saying. And so it is. We believe lies. We take off an indulgence. And it leads us inexorably not to where we thought it was going to lead us, but it leads us to a bondage. And the gospel is a road to freedom. And Paul is saying, don't be messing with the highway to freedom with these false ideas that you are trafficking in. Now notice that Paul describes how he relates to them and how the false teachers relate. Notice the pronouns in verses 16 and 17. Have I, he's referring to himself, and how he related to them, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? We're going to come back to this phrase. Uh, verse 17, they, they, them, they make much of you. Who are they? That, this is the teachers currying their favor, nurturing on their faith and lies. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. Shut you out from what? Shut you out from the freedom of the gospel. They don't want you to experience that. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. They're using flattery to groom them and their allegiance. 
beware of any movement in which everything is built around a central figure. That's not a church, that's a cult. Paul was saying, don't build your life around me. I want Christ to be formed in you. And he was laboring to get to those ends. The false teachers love to build the platform. They love to curry the following, a, a following. Now today, the name of the game is to build a platform. I looked it up for the purpose of this message. Kim Kardashian has quite a platform on Twitter. There's only 330 million people in America. 68.4 million people follow her on Twitter. This is the deal today. Get a following. Build a platform. But Christ's invitation to his disciples could not be more simple and could not come with more implications and be more profound. He says, follow me. The book of Galatians in this text asks us, whom are we following? What are we believing as true? What are we embracing? Where are we getting our news? What ne networks are we loyal to? Whose ideas are leading you around? Whose ideas are leading me around? Are we unwittingly believing lives? Now, please note that true servants of Christ are different. They're driven by motives. They're not driven by the motives of the false teachers trying to gather a following. Because underneath this first point, servants of Christ want to be useful to God by lovingly sharing the gospel while yearning to have Christ formed in the hearts of their listeners. Notice what was driving Paul and ask, has that ever driven me? Is this me? Verse 11, I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. No follower of Christ wants to believe that their life has been in vain. No follower of Christ wants to believe I've lived and my contribution has been vanity, empty, vacuous, nothing. And Paul, in looking at the Galatian followers of Jesus, was scratching his head saying, have I been among you and the result is a big fat zero? No progress in the gospel? And progress in the gospel for Paul is measured in the formation of Christ in them. The putting on of Jesus Christ. He says most affectionately in verse 19, my little children. Uh, there's the tenderness of a mother, actually, that shows up in the metaphor when he even alludes to gestation and the embryo developing into a fetus and the fetus giving rise to a live birth and, and the process, the, the, the difficulty, uh, the throes of delivery, the, the whole uh, 40 weeks leading up to that point. My little children. By the way, one of the things that characterized Paul's ministry, and I hope 
you understand, because it is true, that it is characteristic of our ministry here, and that is our team seeking to lead in this moment loves you. And we yearn that Christ would be formed in you. And that that affection provides the base for our investment in mission here. My little children, we love you. We yearn for you. Paul's love for them didn't mean that he wouldn't face issues with them. Uh, he is talking to them, and he says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Verse 16. Verse 20, his tone is in their face. Galatians has an edge. You've already felt it with me. But it has an edge because Paul was telling them the truth that they needed to hear. Now, one of the truths that he teaches them about is the gospel. This good news message about Jesus, God's Son, come to redeem us, rescue us. Now, as we explain the gospel, we do it either one of two ways. In the explanation, either God and his glory or man and his will is at the center of theology. It's either one or the other. Paul has a fascinating line here when he says, explaining the content of the gospel in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, he reframes it, to be known by God, framing the initiator and the actor as God, framing the believers as the receivers of this incredible initiative that our Creator made in reaching for us. But now that you have come to know God, but don't, let's not give ourselves a gold medal because he frames it, even in tense voice and mood, to suggest that God is the instigator, God is the initiator, and God is the one that brings salvation home to us. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God. And then he goes into this idea, verse 19, of Christ being formed in us. I mean, in your honest moments, as we look at ourselves in the mirror, are we saying, I can see it. I'm growing in the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. And rather than asking that of ourselves, why don't we ask our best friend? Do they see it? Why don't we ask our spouse? Do our children see it? Christ being formed in us. That, that embryo takes time to develop. The Hebrews 5, it takes time uh, through the reason of use in the practice of righteousness to grow up in Christ. But here Paul said, I am not satisfied until Christ is formed in you. By the way, what satisfies us at Calvary Baptist Church? Tell you what, Eric. 125 units were online with us last week. And then, I forget, was it 285 in-person people? So you take 125 portals open up. We, we just do the math, and we just keep track of the numbers. The greater the numbers, the better it is. I, I'm haunted a little bit by a quote I read once that disabused me of any ultimate conclusions regarding numbers. 
Bill Hall, in his book, The Disciple-Making Pastor, said this, the all-too-common measure of greatness is the number of people gathered for worship. If 3,000 people gather, some may make the snap judgment, this is a great church. Measuring greatness this way has two important flaws. First, numbers themselves do not indicate greatness. Large groups can gather for any number of events such as lynchings, mob riots, or Tupperware parties. The second flaw of such a superficial measure is that you have asked the wrong question. How many people are present? By the way, I'm, I'm so glad you are all here with us in person and online. But the right question, and it's the question Galatians 4 is asking us, is what are these people like? What kind of families do they have? Are they honest in business? Are they trained to witness? Do they know the Bible? Are they penetrating their workplaces, their neighborhoods, reaching friends and associates for Christ? Are they making the difference in the world for Christ that he expects? These are the right questions, the issues of the heart, and the criteria for greatness. You know what Paul said? I'm not going to settle... I grew up in a church. Did you have one of these? We had a, uh, a board, and it had, uh, you could put letters in the board, and you put numbers on the board. And uh, today's attendance was always at the top. You know, Uncle Walt would sift through the numbers, you know, 63. Uh, and uh, last Sunday's attendance, you know. This week's offering, you know. Record attendance, you know, 109. 121, whatever it was, you know. Put all, it's up there on the board. It's all there. Say, so Eric, I'll tell you what, we could tell what was going on. Now, really, could you? Is that how we tell? Now, by the way, if God is at work in a place, a few people will gather because they want to be where God is at work. And isn't that in your heart? And if God is not at work, they won't gather. So numbers matter, but let's not draw ultimate conclusions about numbers. What was Paul reaching for? Verse 19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish. Notice that word. By the way, have you ever been in anguish for Christ to be formed in anyone's soul? How comes Paul was so anguished? And we don't understand what that anguish is. For whom I am in anguish, uh, uh, whom, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What are we satisfied with at Calvary? What are we reaching for? How do we determine at the end of 2021 if it's been a good year? Unless and until all of us are yearning that Christ is formed collectively in us and individually in us, we'll not be yearning with anguish for the right things. And Paul is redirecting the trajectory of our anguish. Three important takeaways then to this passage in Galatians 4. Number one, pilgrim's regress is a threat for us. Pilgrim's regress is a threat for us. Verse 9, 
But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known from God, how can you, here's the word, here are the words, turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? What kind of slavery were they in? All they were saying, tell you what, I got to observe this day. I got to observe this holy month. I got to observe this season, these years, verse 10. Paul said, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. They had turned back. Do you know that turning back is a possibility? That turning back happens. Now here Paul gives a before and an after. And the before is very sweet. Now, I wish we knew all the details of everything that could explain all these passages. We have some details I'd really like to know that we don't have for this passage. Paul got sick. And he got sick, so he had to stop in Galatia. There's four major cities there. And they're around each other. And while he's sick there, we don't know what kind of sickness he had. Apparently, it was putrefying uh, to be around him. when he says, you know, you're to give me your very own eyes, it may have been there's something wrong with his eyes. But what would be putrefying? I mean, some speculate, you know, the poor guy had some radical eye infections. And he's, I mean, pus is coming out of his eye. And his eyes are draining. And he's miserable. And it's carrying an odor. And it was very odious. And it was very ugly. But he says, you did not scorn or despise me. He uses a word for spit. You didn't spit when you saw me. And, and they had weird ideas in the first century, one of which was somebody could curse you by giving you the evil eye. It's still in some sectors of the world uh, a part of the worldview. Uh, but you could get rid of the, uh, uh, the uh, evil eye curse if you'd spit. You know, <clears throat> you know just get rid of it. <clears throat> that guy looked at me and said, just spit. And, and, and so if you saw something that was nauseating to you or obnoxious, you uh, didn't want to receive it as it were, you, you would spit. Well, here's Paul. He's sick in some way that we don't know. We'd love to know. It'd make the story better. That, that it's repulsive. Uh, he may have carried a strong odor. And to look at him and look at your eyes and said, dude, you're messed up. And here he is. He gets sick. And what does he do? You know, I was so challenged last year during February when Paul Aiken came. He sits in a Billy Graham uh, chair in the School of Mission and Evangelism at Southern Seminary in Louisville. And uh, he came, and he'd been traveling the world, and he just got back, and he said, Eric, I don't want to be away from my wife and four kids. I'll just drive up on Sunday morning. I'll drive back on Sunday night. And I said, now, look, Paul, we'll put you up in a hotel, give you a place to take off your shoes and relax and sleep for an hour. He goes, no, I'm not doing that. He goes, do you have a Starbucks? I go, what? Do you have a Starbucks around? I go, yeah. And at first, just being a total dullard, I thought, man, he must really like coffee, you know. And so after lunch, I told him where to go to Starbucks. But then I figured out why he wanted to go there. I wanted him to come to my house. I wanted him to go to a hotel. He didn't want to do that because in the hotel room, there's no lost people to be around. At my house in the basement resting, there's no lost people around. I mean, it's pretty quiet on Sundays. We usually sleep through the afternoon, you know. He wanted to go to Starbucks. Because his heart beats to share Christ with others. Here's Paul. He's sick. He goes to Galatia. You know what I do when I get sick? I lay in bed until I get well. What's driving me is my personal comfort. You know what was driving Paul? Even though he's repulsive and his eyes messed up, apparently, uh, so much so that these people loving him said, look, we'd love to give you our eyes and turn this whole thing around. They received him as a messenger from God. You're bringing God's word to us. This is amazing. 
Paul, sick, is driven to share the gospel. What drives us? I'm challenged by this. And, and, and not only the Apostle Paul, but Paul Aiken, obviously, in the illustration. At one time, they said, You're, this is the message from God. You are an angel from God. Here, you need one of our organs. Have it. And yet, a little while later, they are now considered, they now consider Paul their enemy. Why? Because he told them the truth. Because the false teachers have drawn them in to believe lies, and now they were one place, red hot for Christ, newly converted to the gospel. They're in a completely different place. And so pilgrims' regress is a thing. Where are you this morning? Could it be said of you that looking back, you can see former times in your own walk with Christ when you were in better shape spiritually? Why? If we're growing to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, how could it be that we've experienced pilgrims regress? By the way, if you are authentically converted, I mean regenerated, he saved us not by deeds as we have done in the flesh, but by the washing and regeneration brought by the Holy Spirit. If you're made alive, you're alive and you live like you're alive. But there are some who profess faith in Christ. Think of the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and, and you know, I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practiced lawlessness. You say, Eric, well, what about the dropouts? The authentically regenerated persevere. Well, how can you tell who's authentically regenerated, who's persevering? How can you tell who's not, who's dropping out? Everybody has to explain the dropouts. Jesus said, not everybody who claims it has it. I talked to a guy once who told me, and he was a guy who was a lay leader. I used to pray with him every week. He was at meetings. He, his shoulder was in the plow. We were plowing together. We were involved in mission, doing everything we could to make the place go. And he said, you know what? I'll tell you what. There will never be a season in my life when I'll be like that. And like that meant faithful allegiance to the mission of the church and involved in regular attendance and in encouragement of the people of God. So now I said, I'll never go back to those days. It made me wonder, dude, what's going on in your soul? You were there then. You are here now. Where are you really? Are you going forwards or backwards? Are you just walking a place? 2021 is a fresh invitation from our Lord to walk forward together. Pilgrim's regress is a thing. How about you? How about me? Secondly, living the truth and telling the truth makes enemies in our age. Look at verse 16. Am I now your enemy because I've told you the truth? There's never been a day when it meant more to read 2 Timothy 3.12. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Espousing the truth can make you the enemy of others, especially in this cultural moment. I'm still thinking about, and I've mentioned it before, but Rob Dreher's book, uh, Live Not by Lies, and his notion of soft totalitarianism that's coming around Americans and they aren't even conscious to it. He starts the book with a doctor from Mayo Clinic whose family was from Eastern Europe. And his mother came to him and says, 
I'm concerned. So what are you concerned about, Mom? She said, I am feeling the same things I felt as a little girl when the totalitarian ideas were forced upon everyone and there became one party line and our freedoms were eroded. Orthodoxy is being redefined. Gospel Christianity is now outside of the mainstream. We are considered an enemy of the present orthodoxy. Uh, big tech is taking over what is considered acceptable speech. Even decisions made this week to those ends. And I'm not a defender of President Trump's Twitter account, but it's of note that Twitter has banned him permanently. Some ideas are not welcome now in the marketplace. And many of those ideas are mainstream gospel Christianity. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? NASDAQ is now delisting corporations in their listing that are not, quote unquote, woke. That are not buying the cultural lines of systemic racism. By the way, racism is a sin that needs to be repented of. And we all need to bring our hearts out before the Lord and consider it. But when you have corporations determining who gets a place in the economic public square, we've reached a time where somebody's calling balls and strikes and deciding where the strike zone is in the forum of ideas. And gospel Christianity is not considered any longer right down the center of the home plate. So living the truth and telling the truth is going to make enemies in our age. As, the, as Hollywood's apostle Jack Nicholson said one time, many cannot handle the truth. And from henceforth, it shall be harder to live in our age boldly with gospel Christianity. The gospel is fundamentally offensive. It says we have a problem. It's simultaneously wonderful. And God's got a solution. His son, Jesus Christ. He's a redeemer. And we need redemption. Walking in the truth isn't for the faint of heart or those who want everybody to love them. You're a college student? Put your seatbelt on. The next generation is not going to look like the former generation. But what a glorious day to live for Christ in our age. Thirdly, authentic Christianity takes nurture to develop in a local church. Verse 19, what's Paul yearning for? For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul likens himself to a loving mother. The picture is going through the throes of gestation. The 40 weeks that it costs to bring that child forth. The pictures of the development of the embryo. It's from which we get our English term morphology. That word shows up here. That Christ is formed in you. Notice what Paul is yearning for. Notice what he is working toward. Notice what he is laboring for. Such that if it does not happen, he considers his ministry and his life in vain. Is that us and is any of that in our hearts? Verse 11, that Christ is formed in them. Is anyone in anguish over the development of Christ in any other person's lives? Are there any parents here? who are in anguish of the development of Christ in their children. 
Are there any grandparents here in anguish of the development of Christ in their grandchildren? What about our neighbors and the development of Christ in our neighbors' lives, in our work associates' lives, in those on our ball teams, in those that we exercise with? Oh, parents, what a day to live boldly for Christ. I don't know who Alex Cravens is, but I love his heart and mind. He wrote this Wednesday night, holding his infant, rocking the infant before he put the infant to sleep after all of us watched what we watched about our age on TV on Wednesday. Don't feel sorry for or fear for your kids because the world they are going to grow up in is not what it used to be. God created them and called them for the exact moment in time that they are in. Their life wasn't a coincidence or an accident. Raise them up to know the power they walk in as children of God. Train them up in the authority of his word. Teach them to walk in faith knowing that God is in control. Empower them to know that they can change the world. Don't teach them to be fearful and disheartened by the state of the world, but hopeful that they can do something about it. Every person in all of history has been placed in the time that they were in because of God's sovereign plan. He knew Daniel could handle the lion's den. He knew David could handle Goliath. He knew Esther could handle Haman. He knew Peter could handle persecution. He knows that your child can handle whatever challenge they face in their life. He created them specifically for it. Don't be scared for your children, but be honored that God chose you to parent the generation that is facing the biggest challenges of our lifetime. Rise up to the challenge. Raise Daniels. Raise Davids. Raise Esthers. Raise Peters. God isn't scratching his head wondering what he's going to do with the mess of this world. He has an army he's raising up to drive back the darkness and make him known all over the earth. Don't let your fear steal the greatness God has placed on them. I know it's hard to imagine them as anything besides our sweet little babies, and we just want to protect them from anything that could ever be hard on them, but they were born for such a time as this. He writes as a postscript, just some thoughts from a dad who's rocking his sleeping baby and thinking about what a crazy day it has been in our country. Paul said, I am I am in anguish until Christ is formed in them. Are we so self-absorbed that we aren't thinking about sharing Christ and seeing him formed in others? What are we thinking about as parents, gospel Christianity and the forging of the authentic gospel life in our children? What drives us as moms and dads? A joyful seriousness is required to stand up Real world, real world followers of Jesus Christ. Through the years, you with me have seen the little kids get up in front of church and, you know, some of them were super circumspect and they came out as if they had just left, you know, Paris Island as a Marine marching, you know, they're up there and they get in position and they start singing, I may never, and they're singing, I'm in the Lord's army and they get to that chorus and with all valor and gesture, yes, sir, they ended and uh, we, we laugh and smile. But there's never been a day when it was more important, not only for children, not only for students, not only for college students, not only for, for all of us, to stand up in the Lord's army, having anguish over the right things, and yearning, and pinging, and seeking 
that Jesus Christ may be formed in us. That's us in 2021. Let's reach for it with all of our might. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. This, what can seem like an obscure passage, talking about Paul's relatedness to these people 2,000 years ago, crawls into our psyche and our conscience and moves us, Lord. It's unsettling to think about our fears, to think about our aspirations, and whether any or all of them are laced with the dictates of the kingdom of God. Grant, Lord, that we would be found not ashamed of you, not sitting at home with extra door locks we put in, super afraid, but resting in who you are and yearning that Christ will be formed first in us and then in the lives of those we are around. What are you saying to us this morning? Lord, for anybody who's in a moment of regression, at one point those Galatians said, we'll give you our organs, Paul. You're an angel of God bringing the truth to us. Now they had rejected him. Lord, are, are we in a good place spiritually? Are you issuing warrants for arrest this morning with your loving hand on our shoulder, taking us to where we need to go? Lord, deliver us from trifles. Life is passing. Soon we shall all be dead and stand before you while we live. Help us redeem the time and capture the moments and live a gospel life and find our highest joy in you. Hear us pray. We need your help. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.